we understand the classics without the classroom? If you already know why we should preserve ancient history, philosophy, and literature, perhaps it's time to ask how and how you can help. What resources are available? Where can we begin? And how can we find the time? This special Classical Wisdom Speaks episode features Harvard professor Dr. James Hankins and Alexandra Hudson, curator of Civic Renaissance. We discuss how we can find the humanities outside institutions. Hello, everyone. My name is Anya Leonard. I'm the founder and director of Classical Wisdom. And for those of you who are new to Classical Wisdom, we are a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Our goal is to promote and preserve the classics while illustrating the relevancy of ancient history, literature, and philosophy in our here and now. And we do so through our newsletters, ebooks, podcasts called Classical Wisdom Speaks, and events such as these. So today, I'm joined with Dr. James Hankins, professor of history at Harvard University and an intellectual historian specializing in the Italian Renaissance. He is the general editor of the Itati Renaissance Library, which aims to be the Italian Renaissance version, the younger sister of the Loeb Classics Library. Uh, James is also the author of many excellent books, including his latest, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft, and Statecraft. Uh, and before I turn you over to my co-host, Alexander Hudson, who will be acting as our moderator today, I'd like to just have a quick note to say that we will be addressing questions at the end. Uh, but in the meantime, please feel free to write in as you go, as ideas pop into your mind, and we will endeavor to answer as many as we can. So without further ado, I will pass you on to the curator of Civic Renaissance, Alexander Hudson. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Alexandra Hudson, and I'm thrilled that so many of you have decided to spend a bit of your afternoon with us to talk about the why, but, not, but also the how of the life of the mind, the humanities, the liberal arts, the classics. Um, I think this is a really timely conversation because there are a lot of um, conversations going on, uh, questions about um, higher education, uh, the cur educational curricula. Um, and and I, I'd like to start our conversation today talking about, um, again, the why the liberal arts, why, why are we here? Why do we care about these ideas? Uh, what are some barriers to, uh, to the liberal arts today? And uh, then, We'll turn to the really practical part of our conversation: the how. How do we? How might we get a, a classical education outside the classroom without uprooting our our lives, our families, quitting our jobs, going back to school? That's not really feasible for many of us. Yet these ideas, these books, this, the great conversation, hold such high promise to improve each one of our lives, how we engage, how we um, move forward in, in the world, and, and strength. And and I think that that there's a lot of opportunity for us to uh, to live our lives better and well by. I, um, by being exposed and engaging with these ideas. So excited to have you part of the conversation. We hope to um, learn just as much from you as, as, <laughs> as we offer some ideas as well. So excited to have, um, have your contributions at the end of this conversation. Uh, we'll leave the last uh, 15, 30 minutes for questions. And just for registering uh, for this conversation, you've automatically been entered to win a copy of James Hankins' latest book, uh, Virtue Politics. It's a wonderful, wonderful book about the power of ideas of a classical, of a, of a liberal arts education to transform society, transforming our leaders, making them making them noble and just, and, and um, transforming society from the bottom up, but also the top down. And so um, I've really been nourished 
touched by this book, and I hope uh, you will too. There will be two lucky winners on this call today um, of, of James Hankins' book. And you've also been entered to win uh, a year subscription to the teaching company's uh, Great Courses Plus, which is, we'll talk about this today, but that's actually how I got my classical education. I didn't do it in school. Uh, my, my classical education happened exclusively outside the classroom. And the teaching company, um, there are incredible uh, uh, great courses uh, across disciplines, not just the classics, but offer great promise, great opportunities to keep learning, keep nourishing your mind uh, outside of school, outside the classroom. So uh, everyone has been entered in to win uh, Dr. Hengen's book and also a year uh, subscription to the teaching company's uh, Great Courses Plus. So without further ado, um, I'd like to turn to uh, Jim. Uh, tell us about why, why are we here? Why do we care about the liberal arts? Why do we care about the humanities, the classics, and uh, what's the difference between all of these different disciplines? You mentioned uh, there's a difference between the liberal arts, the humanities, the classics. Let's, let's parse that, and then why do they matter? Okay, thank you very much for the introduction, and I'm very happy to be here. Uh, the liberal arts and the humanities are not the same thing. Uh, the liberal arts were invented in antiquity. Uh, artes liberales is a Latin term which refers to the education of basically aristocrats in the ancient world. Uh, translates the Encyclios Paideia of the Greeks, uh, which is invented, I think, basically in the fourth century BC, uh, also as a kind of training for future public leaders, future uh, leaders of society. Uh, the humanities are an invention of the Renaissance, effectively invented by the great scholar-poet Petrarch in the middle of the 14th century. But they became, became a kind of movement, the humanities movement, the studio humanitatis, uh, which you can translate the study of humanity or as zeal for humanity. Um, and that was more of a transformational uh, program, uh, interested in improving character, uh, you know, the, the famous seven liberal arts of antiquity were um, skills, grammar, logic, rhetoric, mathematics, arithmetic, you know, mathematics and astrology and music and those, the quantitative studies uh, to train your mind. But the humanities are meant to improve your character and they study uh, what they add to the curriculum is history, poetry and moral philosophy. Uh, moral philosophy and the humanity and liberal arts have been on different tracks entirely in antiquity. What the humanities do is they bring them together and they formally study history and poetry more than antiquity. And antiquity study poetry basically as a, as a um, source of good language, whereas the humanities of the Renaissance study poetry as inspiration for, for, for noble and great behavior. So that, that's the difference. Now, why one would study the, these things is a different question. Um, but uh, just the liberal arts, I think, in particular, people forget that they're actually very practical. I think today people often think of the liberal arts as a kind of luxury good, that if you go to college, you take a liberal arts, you know, you're not advancing your career. Um, you're maybe um, you know, sharpening your mind in some vague way or, you know, giving yourself culture, but you're not actually, it's not a careerist move to take a philosophy course, which, by the way, is quite wrong. Uh, but it, it's, it's a general impression that the humanities and the liberal arts are not useful. But I think most of the history of the, of the liberal arts and humanities, they've been regarded as extremely useful and something that you really couldn't do without. 
if you think of you know, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, what are you learning? You're learning how to speak correctly, how to speak uh, pr uh, precisely so that other people understand you, which is not an easy skill, uh, how to speak powerfully, effectively, how to convince other people, how to persuade other people. Uh, and the humanists of the Renaissance thought that if the leader was not persuasive, they would have to use force. So that, that's one reason to be persuasive, to bring people over to your mind so you don't simply have to go out and pass laws and enforce them. And then, of course, logic is an indispensable skill as well. You have to be able to think clearly as well as to speak clearly. And I think it's really been a tremendous fault in modern humanities education that we don't liberal arts education, we don't pay enough attention to these basic skills, which are extremely important to our societies. You know, we're, uh, and the great thing about traditional liberal arts and humanities is they paid a great deal of attention to language, right? Was, what I spent all my time in classical studies doing in high school and college is translating texts, right? We sat down and read Cicero or Virgil, and we translated it. And it sounds like um, that's, it sounds very much like a, a waste of time, a luxury, uh, and uh, but it's also a tremendous intellectual skill to be able to take something in another language and translate precisely into your own language. And if, we, if you think about international affairs, the importance today of of communicating among different groups, uh, and the fact that English is is a lingua franca. You know, I just heard my housekeeper and my cleanly talking English, one's Brazilian, one's Thai, um, you know, they use English and be able to use English precisely is a hugely important thing to do. That You shouldn't get the impression, by the way, that I'm very wealthy. That's just, just that I need help with things like that in my life. So uh, humanities is very useful. Uh, we don't need that the quantitative humanities as much as we used to, or, or I should say the quantitative humanities, the quantitative liberal arts, mathematics, uh, sciences, and so forth are kind of blossomed out on their own. But the, the language part of the humanities is extremely important. Uh, and uh, I would also um, argue that the addition to the, to the liberal arts that the humanities makes in the Renaissance is also vital for our well-being, uh, the study of poetry, history, moral philosophy, uh, and oratory. They often study oratory as well, great speeches of the past. These are very important to our well-being in part because uh, they, uh, history in, in particular, I think gives us a kind of practical wisdom that we don't get uh, from other uh, sources. I was watching Victor Davis Hanson on, on this channel <laughs> Uh, uh, just to prepare for the talk, and I, 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 I saw that he, he has the same attitude towards history that I do, that it's a tremendous source of comfort when you see the horrors and the, and the, you know, the, 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 uh, the diseases, mental and cultural diseases of our time, and you know that this has happened before, mm -hmm. right? We've had these kind of problems before. And uh, and what history gives you, uh, and it's very important for political prudence, is to know what's valuable and what's not valuable, what's permanent, what's not permanent. You know, um, have we had this before? Uh, is it survivable? A lot of people are, are uh, you know, went crazy over COVID, 
when it first happened because they simply had no idea what it was going to mean. Is you know the world going to be wiped out? And you know uh, I wrote an article back then about uh, the Black Death, trying to point out that Black Death was a little more serious than than you know as serious as COVID is. This is this is nothing on the order of the Black Death, right? So history gives you this kind of perspective. Uh, poetry, I think, uh, was valued by the ancients in partly partly because it was memorable, right? It was in verse and it stuck in your mind. And I, I can still remember lines of verse that I learned as a, you know, Latin verse that I learned uh, in middle school uh, and high school that we had to memorize. Our teacher made us memorize uh, phrases, uh, lines from poetry and phrases. And I, I, at the time, of course, being, you know, teenagers, we said, well, we have to memorize all this stuff for, you know. <laughs> You know, you know, what good is that? And, and now at the age of 66, I, I realize that my teacher did a good thing for me because I still remember these phrases and and, uh, and uh, they're actually quite comforting and they provide you with some kind of mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. talking to you, so I, I should uh, let, let you respond to what I've said so far. I thank you. No, that's that's wonderful. You're absolutely right about uh, memorization. That's a, that's a, a part of the educational tradition we definitely have lost in our modern era. And I love what you said, uh, Jim, kind of tracing the lineage of this idea of the humanities liberal arts. You talked about paideia in ancient Greece, how this was like character formation, um, the, the educational curriculum that all Greek male citizens were expected to undergo. And that found expression in uh, ancient Rome in, in the... the um, um, Humanitas, or no, in in the Studia Humanitatis, the the no, the liberal arts, the the uh, liberal art, uh, that and that that Cicero unpacked, and and um and that that they drew from Roman literature and also exclusively Greek literature. The Greeks, of course, were pretty primarily <laughs> interested in Greek literature. Romans were interested in Roman and Greek literature, and then that found expression, that same idea, in the Renaissance, um, with with Humanitas. Uh, and I, one of my favorite things that you've written, Jim, is that essay for First Things about the forgotten virtue, how humanitas for the uh, Renaissance humanists like Petrarch was, um, was again, using the, this, uh, well, this curriculum of poetry, of rhetoric, of philosophy to kind of soften the soul, order the loves, and, and cultivate a love, of, a love of others, a love of humanity, and soften the red, rougher edges of our soul. And that was, that expression is like, is civility. That's the, and, and talk about relevant to our our modern era today as someone who's writing a book on civility uh, i've really been nourished by your work looking at how this concept uh, and educational curriculum and tradition has been important to to fostering just humane interactions with people like life in society is hard it's difficult like we're <laughs> we're selfish but social and things it's difficult to, to balance those two aspects of our nature and do civilization together and uh this mode of, of education that has nourished people for thousands of years um helps us balance those aspects of our nature mitigate the selfish the social can flourish and and that we can live in harmony and community together um so i love i love what you said i love that aspect of your work so anya um what do you think are some barriers to um to studying the the humanities, studying the liberal arts, studying the classics today. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot I think um, that was even addressed by James in, with regards to how it's perceived that people think it's it's not going to be practical, that it's something that's just leisure. Um, in in the we'll talk about leisure as a concept later, I'm sure, but that uh, that it's something that people don't need and. You know, that's one of the things that we always try to do with classicalism is to show the relevance and and 
that even in a very practical way, if you're studying logic, you are either in school for philosophy or mathematics, that it's often the, the premise for even STEM sort of research. Uh, and I often like to talk about rhetoric, the importance of it. It's great to learn how to, to speak eloquently and to convey your points and be able to have conversation with your family and friends without getting into huge fights. But it's also really important to notice when rhetoric's being used on you. Uh, and I always like to remind people that because once you start seeing those devices, you you can see how people, to be honest, can be persuaded into things that they might not even be realized, realizing they're persuaded. And to be a good citizen, to be part of a community, it's it's very important to be defensive of when people are using those against you. But I think um, back to your question about barriers, uh, I think you know, we do have a bit of a trend at the moment, which is downplaying the importance of ancient history. Um, and I realize that there's a lot of things and elements in ancient history that, that don't match our current modes of how we expect society to act, um, social equalities and, and such, and very important issues. And these are important issues, but I think it's, it's important to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and to, pick the very important elements in ancient history and in renaissance and to find the the elements that are transcendental that are part of our humanity that improve our humanness yeah if i Sorry. could just make a point i mean people today complain about um about uh you know uh, elements in ancient world which do not fit our current our current sets of values, but we also have to remember that the ancient world, ancients had many values that were missing in our modern world. This is actually the inspiration for the Renaissance. People realized that there was something missing in their culture. They were reading, you know, Plutarch and Livy and all these noble Romans and Greeks, and they said, "Where is that nobility today? You know, where are those, where are those values today? Where's that love of country today?" Uh, hmm. So we can, you know, it's not just that we have, we should present ourselves as the censors of antiquity, we should present ourselves more humbly and say, look, what did the ancients have that we don't have anymore? We have idea of progress, of course, has, has um, you know, poisoned this whole uh, alliance, uh, allegiance to tradition and love of the past because a false idea of progress makes us believe that we're better than the ancients, right? that we're always going to be, we have better science, so that makes us better generally. But um, there's a kind of parallel to the 14th century because the 14th century had a belief that we have Christianity uh, before the humanist, that we have Christianity, so that makes us superior to the ancients, right? The pagan ancients. And then people like Petrarch came along, who was a very sincere and de deeply uh, reverent Christian who says, yes, we have Christian truth, but there's still stuff in the pagan world that we don't we don't we don't have, uh, and we need to get it back. And our world is falling apart because we don't have those things anymore. We we don't know what true nobility is. That was a term of art in the period. We don't know what true nobility is. The idea of of a high purpose and the idea of uh, human excellence that's placed at the service of other people, right? The idea of total loyalty to to the community and selflessness, all these things, you know, people in Petrarch's generation are looking around and saying, where are they? You know, we're Christians, yes, we're, we're saved. We have 
we have uh, Christian grace, God's grace, but we're not acting very well. We're not behaving very well. It's not transforming us in the ways that, that we would like. So we need help. We want to go back to the ancients for that reason, right? Mm -hmm. the, the ancients did some a lot of stuff better than we did. This is the 14th century. Today, today the issues are different, obviously, but there's still a lot that the ancient world has to offer us that we're missing. I, I, I completely agree, and uh, this kind of brings back to what I was saying about rhetoric, but that I think most people can agree that we don't have many statesmen or stateswomen left. We only have politicians. And there is a big difference between people who are just catering for public opinion and just to be elected and just want power. And, and there are so many of those now. Uh, and it's tragic because, like you said, when, when, where are the Ciceros? You know, what, what we need to bring back a culture where people not only realize that there is something like a statesman, that it's different from a politician, but that we as the people should expect that, that somebody needs to live up to that and we should have our standards higher for the yeah. people that we want to be running whatever yeah. country we have to be in. Yeah, I agree, and um, I, I actually think that there are more people out there who, uh, in the even politicians who are who have good motivations, are civically minded. They they want to improve their countries, uh, but the structure of of incentives is so different nowadays that those people are not rewarded. I mean, one of the great advantages the British have is that they have the honor system, right? And it's been corrupted, obviously, and there's lots of honors given out to people who donate to parties and so forth. But there's still, I, I've noticed this living in England in various periods of my life, that you know, there, there is the, the British uh, elite, it has in the back of its mind that it would like to have a knighthood, you know, or a lordship or something <laughs> like that. And that, that holds them to a certain standard of behavior, right? Because you can't get huge scandals and expect to get that. And they want to serve their country, or at least they want to serve enough to get the honors. We don't have anything like that in the US and the rewards are quite different. We reward celebrity rather than service and those kind of things. But uh, that's something, again, we could definitely learn from the ancients, especially the Romans who are very good at rewarding, uh, and the Greeks too, I think, were very good at rewarding people who served their country and served their city. Uh, and those people had honor, right? This is a concept that the ancients had that we are, are kind of, you know, we, we are contemptuous of today. What's, what's the term I'm looking for? We, when we think about honor, we think of something that's, you know, old fashioned, something your grandfather might have cared about or something that people in the military care about. But it's not it's not helping you to um, improve your uh, GDP or improve your bank account at all. But you know, honor is very important. It's something that we have to we have to study the ancients to find out how they did that, because it's not it's not going to come from people saying I'm a bad person and I need to be a good person. You know, many of us have had that kind of conversion experience at one point in our life. We 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 say to ourselves, look, this my behavior is not good. I need to do something about it, and maybe the classics can help with that. But I think more more importantly, uh, that we have to understand the world of the classics and how especially this concept of honor uh, was so important to eliciting good behavior on people, making people understand that, uh, yes, I want to be good. I, I hate my bad person, my, my bad, I hate myself when I'm bad, but also there are rewards out there. Other people will recognize me. 
and say pat me on the head and say that was very good that you you know that you you gave money for this cause or you um, you served in this office i don't think we have enough of that i think this conversation on leadership is really interesting really important in the context of um how to at civic renaissance we've been talking about what are the ingredients of cultural renewal of of revival of of a renaissance essentially and you know we were talking about like today uh where where is Pericles? Like we don't have the Medici's. Like we have a lot of philanthropy, we have a really robust philanthropic network in America. The Tocquevillian civil society is is extraordinary. We have a lot to be grateful for, but it's not as targeted, you know, intentional in in, in cultivating the um, kind of character, soul craft, the liberal arts that that these leaders of of Renaissance that who who led and presided over areas um, that had um, just unprecedented unlocking of human potential and ingenuity and innovation. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here. How do we, in our daily lives, how do we um, cultivate our humanity and fulfill our human potential in our everyday? And so leadership is one kind of ingredient. Another one is is leisure time. And and I think that I've, I've, been, I've been polling a, a lot of Civic Renaissance members and, and people just feel like they don't have the time. We're distracted, we're busy, we have jobs, we have kids, we have so much going on. We're pulled in a million different directions and we're bombarded every second of our, of our lives with things demanding our immediate attention. How do we kind of unplug and like just guard zealously time in our in our day and in our lives to think deeply and reflect and read deeply. Um, and I want to hear hear from uh, Anya on this, yet I'd like to just share quickly a, uh, a resource that I love on this book. It's a, a very short book, 50 pages by a gentleman named um, Arnold Bennett. It was written in um, 1908, kind of in it, he's English, and so it's kind of in this in this cultural era where um, there's ur urbanization. People are slowly moving kind of off the farm and into the city and into white collar jobs, nine to five jobs. And he says very succinctly, like, to have an intellectual life, you have to create a day within a day. So think about it. You, you're eight hours at work, you're an hour commuting, that leaves you, and you have to sleep at least eight hours probably to be healthy, but that leaves you seven hours to have a robust intellectual life. Like he's like, take every single second of your life captive. Like don't just fritter away uh, time brushing your teeth for 20 minutes or you know just shooting the breeze. Like, like be intentional about how you use your time. I think we might have a lot more time than we think, he says. And and, and he says to have, so like you have seven hours outside of work, commute and sleeping. And he's like, all you need to have a robust intellectual life is 90 minutes, three times a week of deep thinking and reading. That's it. And that's his like recipe. And he, then he says, start with poetry. And he has some poets that he loves. Um, and then he, he's like, you know, anyone who doesn't, anyone who doesn't like poetry really can't be helped. <laughs> um, but it's just a really fun book. It's, it's absolutely free on um, Project Gutenberg. But you can also, I have the hard copy because I like hard copies. But it's a really fun, easy, easy breezy read that um, it's just, it kind of like ignites your spirit. You're like, okay, yeah, I can do this too. So uh, that's, that's, that's one um, kind of fun text that uh, can encourage e each of us um, with some with some techniques to kind of find more time in the very limited 24 hours we each, each have and are limited by in our every day. Um, what, what are some other ways that, that we can um, kind of create more time and, and, and more reflection for, for leisure? Anya, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's good timing, I must say, uh, to keep talking about time, that uh, today I'm actually releasing a podcast um, that I did with Zena Hitz, who wrote a book called Lost in Thought, um, and she's 
we just actually had a blast in this conversation, I must say. Um, but talking about the concept of leisure and finding it, and one, I think it's just identifying what leisure is, what is meaningful time, and to prioritize it. So it's not being distracted. Uh, I'm sorry, watching football and drinking a beer doesn't count. Uh, it, you you do need to do something that kind of gives a sense of meaning, and you know we're trying to we discuss a lot of ways that you can try to figure out what that is because it's different things for different people. It doesn't have to be just reading philosophy. Uh, it can be bird watching. It can be painting. Uh, it can be just playing music or singing. Finding leisure time. It just has to be something that's that is more meaningful than than just passing time. And I think part of that is to realize that we do pass a lot of time right now um, with social media, with you know the not notifications and the badges and the bingings that go on in our life. And we all know this. We know this that like you spend a half an hour on your phone and you put it down. And you're like, oh, like everybody has that feeling. Nobody comes away thinking, wow, I'm so glad I spent that half an hour not reading a book <laughs> or singing a song. You know, sometimes you do get meaningful interactions with people. There is connecting. There is finding interesting articles. Um, you know, I'm not going to just trash the whole um, world because I use it too. Everybody does. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't exist. But there is definitely times when we get home and we're just being lazy. But the yeah. thing is, is that, that when you do sit down with a book and or start picking up your guitar or just go for a walk and look at the birds you that can also be relaxing and meaningful at the same time um and even if it doesn't seem at first i think that, that the problem is we're so uncomfortable with being bored for even that one second that we don't push past it to get to the really re really re rewarding part where where we, we gain from that time and I'm not saying I'm perfect, don't worry. I do this too, I'm working on it. There's a great line in Pascal where he says, all the troubles in the world come from people not being able to sit alone quietly in a room. <laughs> Meaning that you know, they have to find ways to occupy themselves uh, which, are, uh, which, are, which don't have any kind of inner core to them. But it's funny you should mention Zena because uh, Zena and I actually were writing our books together in the same place. We were in uh, Notre Dame. Uh, uh, I got in a semester off. She got in a semester off at the Center for Ethics and Culture. And uh, we took to having a meeting every, or lunch, meeting, lunch every Friday to talk about our books. And we <laughs> realized after a while that we were kind of working on different themes because she was working about, you know, working on scole, on, you know, cultivating the self uh apart from the demands of ordinary society and i was working on you know how the italian humans i was studying were trying to uh instrumentalize one might say that the humanities in order to transform society so they were the kind of different projects and possibly uh, uh antagonistic projects but and this kind of emerged over the course of weeks while we're having an hour lunch and and, and her book is going in one direction my book's going in the other direction but we 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 uh, we did, I think we we came to a, a understanding between the two of us, and I'm very fond of her. She's a very good person. Uh, that uh, both things are necessary, right? And not everyone's 
the, you know, the humanities uh, and liberal arts can be uh, can be used to um, improve the quality of leadership. Uh, and the people who uh, have had that training will be better leaders for that education. But that is not really what the life of the mind is about. Uh, the life of the mind is something that is, it's a contemplative life, right? This is what the concept of the ancients was that there was an active life and a contemplative life. And the contemplative life for Aristotle should not be subordinated to the active life. Uh, the contemplative life was something that grew out of a well-ordered society, right? If you have a badly ordered society, you're worried about getting, you know, getting getting your house burned down uh, or, you know, getting uh, beaten up by thugs or invaded by foreign enemies. So you need a well-ordered society, a well-run society. But when that happens, then you have the natural growth of the contemplative life, right? That the flower grows out of the out of the good soil. And uh, then you can have a fully flourishing human being. So the two things go together, but they're not, uh, but they're not really antagonistic. I think that they're complementary, in fact. I love that. I love that. Um, just a note on your uh, comment on Pascal. Talk about a man ahead of his time. Like he's talking before internet, before social media, before the printing press, really. Even <laughs> and he's and he's talking about how distracted we are, how prone we are to just like fritter our time away and not be disciplined, and how um, how we're always looking for excuses to not just sit and be still and and reflect. Um, and I think you made an interesting point how your project in in virtue politics here, um, Jim and Zena's project. Uh, lost in thought kind of approach this from two, two different angles I think that we um, one problem today is that we have really you you know made learning utilitarian we've kind of we have kind of instrumentalized it where we're we're, we, we're obsessed with efficiency like we why do we want good grades to get into a good college why do we want to get into a good college so we get a good job why do we want a good job so we can have lots of money and impress our friends and have a house and have a car like it's always a means to an end as opposed to seeing learning as, as something a joy in and of itself. Uh, and I think that's part of you know why I'm excited to be having this conversation that learning ought not end when we leave school. Like part of being human is growing and cultivating like who we are, our self-awareness and our awareness of the world around us. Like that's what, uh, if we stop doing that, we don't just, you know, pause and plateau, we literally atrophy our minds and our bodies. And so this is, I want this conversation to be an encouragement to each of us to, to keep growing, to keep nourishing our, our hearts, minds, bodies, and spirits through, um, through the life of the mind. But because it's good in and of itself, as Jim mentioned, and the, as the whole virtue politics project says, that doesn't mean there are no external benefits to society. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna, you're gonna have a harder time getting a job or you're gonna have, you know, a harder time making friends, but that's often how uh, we kind of just think think of things through the ends themselves as opposed to seeing them as um, as good in, in and of themselves. And um, one one example of, uh, of, I think, a really beautiful uh, utilitarian approach to this, uh, and, and again, on this theme of humanities outside of institutions, the liberal arts, the classics outside of institutions, uh, Jim, you might have, might have even known a gentleman named Earl Shoris. I don't know if that name sounds familiar to you. Mm -hmm. He has this beautiful um, essay in Harper's from like 98, 1998 that I, I'll, I'll include. After this conversation, by the way, everyone, we're going to have a, a full like document that all of us, Jim, Jim, Anya, are going to put together of all the resources we're talking about. So you can take those home with you. A lot of Jim's amazing work, a lot of great resources that Anya has with classical wisdom. So you can all have that. And I'll include this essay. It's called A Weapon in the Hands of the Restless Poor, this, this essay that Earl Shores wrote. 
And he talks about how he was um, doing some sort of um, volunteer work in the prison system and spoke to a woman about, you know, what she what would she wanted out of life when she was finally out of prison. And she goes, I would really like to have a better understanding of the moral life downtown. And he goes, what do you mean by that? And she goes, you know, plays and, and, and music and things like that. And he goes, you mean the humanities? And she says, yes. That I mean the humanities. And so from that conversation, it was kind of like an epiphany for him. And he started something called, that's still in existence today, called a Clemente course for the humanities that is explicitly about educating low-income and minority individuals um, in uh, in the humanities. Because because he and he's, he has this famous line where the educate the best education for the best is the best education for all. The humanities, the classics, have been the purview of the elite in society across history, because normally it's only the elite that have the time to cultivate their minds, to learn to read, to learn ancient languages. And most people in human history have had to survive, like they've had to work and like, you know, it's been like pretty much on subsistence level. And I, I've been reflecting on this question a lot. What does it mean for us today where we are not we're not basically all on subsistence level. We have more leisure time, we have more resources than any other, and more access to information and books and learning than ever before in human history. What, um, what, what might we do with that? How might we optimize these opportunities before us in this unique moment of time that we're in? And what might be, again, to this point of uh, consequence, like what, what kind of consequence could there be for a broader society if, if a, you know, a quorum of, of each of us on this call like choose to make the most of these opportunities, cultivate ourselves, and, and maybe we could even start a new civic renaissance. So um, I, I'd love to hear from you, Jim. What are some of the uh, these institutions that are cropping up, uh, opportunities that, that people might be able, on this call might be able to take advantage of that are not credentialed, they're not credentialed institutions, like they're not universities, and they're not credentialing, like they're not giving you, you know, no. a degree, they're not degree generating, but they're saying, you know, they're welcoming people up through their doors and saying, you can learn these ideas, these ideas will help you. So you just wrote a wonderful article um, kind of looking at some of these uh, institutions. Tell us, tell us about them, where they are, and what you've learned from them. Okay, well, um, I became aware of this because I was invited to give a lecture at one of them at the Morningside Institute at Columbia. Uh, and, and they asked me to talk, it was, the, I think the 100th anniversary of Columbia's contemporary civilization. Uh, and I went there and I'm saying, and it's a humanities institute that is in the, in the area of Columbia University and has Columbia students in it, uh, but it's not, connected with the curriculum in any way. And I went there with a question in my mind, why do they need to have a humanities institute in Columbia? Because Columbia is one of the best places in the country to study the humanities. Columbia and Chicago are the two, uh, the two um, you know, heroes in the decline of American education are keeping the, these, uh, these uh, studies alive. And it turns out that there are a lot of people at Columbia and uh, recently graduated from Columbia and in professional schools who, who didn't get enough humanities or felt that they hadn't been able to talk about the humanities in ways that they would have liked to talk in classrooms because classrooms have gotten very political as we all know. And that they were afraid if they, if they revealed their true thoughts that they would be shut down or canceled and so they wanted to go to a place where people were a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more open-minded, and because they, they they're seekers, right? They kind of there there are people out there who are seekers who who don't know all the answers, uh, 
and who um, who want to come to to, to they want to um, to have a core of beliefs that they really feel are their own beliefs that they've thought through things they've read great works of literature they've read read challenging philosophy and beautiful poetry and they, they, there's something they value there they want to be centered in that in some way and they're not getting it in schools so because uh, there there's all the politicization going on and of course. Uh, in many schools, they're just getting rid of the humanities uh, as luxuries or they're not bringing enough students and that kind of thing. So I was very moved by this place. And then I discovered that there's a whole network of them. Uh, I've come across now 22 of them. And they're at major universities, right? Harvard's got one called the Abigail Adams Society. Yale has one called the Elm Institute. There's one at Penn called Collegium Institute. There are two at Chicago, which is even more surprising. I, I gave a lecture at one of them called Lumen Christi, which is a Catholic or Catholic foundation, but it's open to non-Catholics. Uh, there's Zephyr at Stanford. Uh, I can't remember all the names of them, but they're places where students and faculty who feel that they can't discuss freely the humanities the way they used to do, right? Uh, that they can do it there. I, I remember when I was a young teacher at Columbia, I taught. Um, Contemporary civilization, which is the comic, comically misnamed course that begins with the ancient Greeks and comes down to modern time, uh, that it was assumed that you are going to take these, read these books, uh, in order to give yourself a philosophy of life, right? That you would, you know, you would bang up against Plato and Aristotle and Hegel and Kant, and you know, you would be able to, you know, to figure out where you stood and what you thought. Uh, and for get some kind of uh, <clears throat> we used to call it a philosophical position. Everybody had to have a philosophical position, and that was a good thing. It gave people dignity, right? Mm -hmm. People talk a lot about dignity today, but one thing it gives people dignity is to know where they think and what they believe and what they will uh, they will accept and what they won't accept. <clears throat> so, but that's disappeared from universities. Uh, it's too dangerous if if you're not. If you're not simply, uh, you know, uh, if you're not simply uh, parroting the uh, whatever the current line is, um, and agreeing with everything you're told to agree with in universities, then you're you're in some kind of uh, danger, uh, or you feel yourself to be in danger, which may not be. Uh, and many people are want another place to go. And since I published this article, I published it, I think it's maybe my most successful article online because it got aggregated several places, you know, Arts and Letters Daily and uh, Powerline, a couple other places. Uh, I got, started getting emails from people who wanted to find, a, you know, where could they sign up? And also from professors who had recently retired or were uh, older generation professors who remembered the good old days, right, when people people could talk more freely and explore all their ideas and maybe say a few of those words you're not allowed to say anymore. Uh, and um, they wanted to see if they, you know, offer their teaching. That they would like to go to such a place and hold a seminar. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I love that. Yeah, so I think that the, there is a, there is a need out there uh, for this uh, for this sort of institute. And untapped potential. People that love this are subject matter experts and want to give, want to keep being a part of the conversation. So yeah. 
I, I want to turn to Anya and talk about where do we start? Like, what do we read? Where can we, if we want to start today or tomorrow, Anya, where do we start? But really quickly, I want to share uh, a little anecdote about uh, a book I read this weekend about a time in history where um, the great books were kind of primarily outside of institutions. This book uh, is called A Great Idea at the Time, and it's about the history of the great books movement at U Chicago with Mortimer Adler and the U Chicago president uh, Hutchins. Um, and the whole idea was that this is for everyone. These ideas are for everyone. And so they, they put together um, 74 authors and I think it was like 450 works and put them in uh, 75 volumes that I have on my shelf. You might be able to see some of them behind me there. And they sold a million sets between 1940 and 1960. They sold a million sets. That's 2% that's of the American population bought these sets. That's incredible cultural diffusions. Like one thing I love about Petrarch, our dear friend Jim, is that he was able to take you know great books, great ideas, and have it have incredible like cultural resonance and staying power. But I don't think he reached two percent of like the population of Europe at his day. I don't think it was that kind of widely disseminated kind of cultural influence. Yeah, he invented um, the term great books, by the way. You know that. I didn't the know that. First, the first use of that term um, is, is in Petrarch's preface to his uh, one of his moral philosophy works, where he's writing to a, a ruler and telling him he needs to read great books. This is about middle of the 14th century. I love that. I love but, that. You know, the humanities originally they did not start in the university; they started outside. So same as the same as Mortimer Adler's great books, right? Uh, they started outside the university. Yeah. They started in private schools. Uh, and uh, in uh, private study, and eventually they only came into the university, started coming into the universities about uh, 1420s. Um, but before that, they were there was a private education. So, and I think that's maybe what's going to have to happen now is we have to move out of the universities again because universities right. are becoming hostile ground for humanistic studies in the best sense of that word. Right. So, so. That and that it's interesting that there were, of course, criticisms of the Great Books Project at the time, even from people who loved the Great Books, like Alan Bloom and Lionel Trilling at, at Columbia, famous literary critic. They were very critical of like the commercialization and democratization of the Great Books and Great Ideas, and there were criticism that the people who bought these books just wanted them as like decorative things on their shelves and never actually read them. There were criticisms that they had like archaic science texts, like Ptolemy, that is interesting as like an like archaeological artifact but not really relevant to like modern science and of course criticisms that we're all very familiar with today that it was exclusively dead white men <laughs> and no women and so in the 1990s version they did include um, some women George Eliot Jane Austen which is you know a step in the right direction but I think it's interesting to learn about learn about this kind of era of our recent history uh, a time where, where these great books and these great ideas the great conversations did have widespread cultural diffusion learn from what they did well um, and and learn from like how can we improve on what they on what they achieved as well and what would we do differently? Um, of course, Anya is always quick to remind me that Sappho was uh, was on par with with Homer in the ancient world, and so there's there's so many um, there's so many aspects of of uh, like the, the classics are not a monolith. There's lots of diversity that we can draw from to to incorporate and diversify the core and the and the great conversation, uh, and lots of things that we can can do better and improve uh, as as we try to have this conversation. But how do these ideas matter um, today and, and how might they um, help us live our lives better?
Um, and, and so I, I love that example. Um, but interestingly, at, at uh, did you come across the basic seminar at U Chicago, Jim, in your in your kind of survey of these? So that's kind of the, one of the only places at U Chicago that is mm -hmm. still the great book. And and that's the basic seminar is only for adults that want to get a great books education. It's a four year curriculum where you know you start reading Homer and you kind of work your way through the canon. And it's you know you pay and you get a liberal arts certificate, but it's like kind of quasi credentialed. But uh, that's yeah. the a place where you can uh, still get a great books education. Another resource. Yeah, for maybe a number of great books universities around the country, and the famous one is St. John's, where Zena Hitz teaches. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. St. John's, that's great. Yeah. They have a they have more Radler's curriculum basically still there yeah. with you know changes and this and that. But um, and there are, there's another St. John's I believe in New Mexico. Is that right? Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Uh, and there are other places that teach great books curriculum as part of it. So you can, you can do it in, in college if you want. Uh, but I think the problem is that, the, that the, uh, the large universities, the more prestigious universities, decided that this is no longer what they want. Uh, they're the elites that they train to know. And fortunately, the students themselves are a little bit more smart than, than their administrators are. And they know that they really should not graduate from Harvard or Yale without having read Plato and Shakespeare. And, you know, they, and they come to our courses where I teach this stuff uh, at Harvard and you know, they, they, they understand that this is what educated people should know, right? <clears throat> and you can't, have a, you can't have a conversation with a well-read person and not be, uh, and uh, having to you know, get out your, your, your cell phone to look up who Shakespeare is. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that Shake, that most members of the U.S. Congress who have heard the name of Shakespeare could not name the century in which he lived. Right. That's depressing. That's depressing. Nineteenth century. Got kind of confused with Jane Austen. But I, I'm being sarcastic and annoying and, and arrogant, so I shouldn't stop. Stop that. So, Sorry, yeah. sorry, can I just interrupt and say, though, we have quite a lot of questions from the audience, and yeah. it's we're almost out of time. So we, we, I fear that the three of us could probably chat for quite a few hours, but we might need to, at some point, um, let uh, direct some questions to you guys, um, if, that's, if that's possible. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, um, I was just going to say also that, um, with regards to the institutions and, and such. Uh, I was actually having a, a phone call the other day with uh, Stephen Blackwood, who's running Ralston College, which is another program where they're trying to set up uh, the classics outside of the classroom and, and do courses and such. Uh, and, he, and he had a very optimistic note, which was, hey, there there is a need, a demand right now for people looking for something more substantial. So. What we need to do is find ways that we can provide this for people and, and make sure that they know that there's options for more substantial education and, and philosophy and literature and that, that these are available. And I think there are many institutions uh, beyond just the ones that you mentioned, James, but even just more informally, like for people who are interested in philosophy, modern stoicism is a, is a growing movement. and. Um, I know Alexandra and I are both friends with Donald Robertson. He's done a lot of great work with uh, showcasing how that ancient philosophy can be helpful for people today. Um, 
There's many wonderful podcasts as well, so you can turn your commutes into more useful time. Uh, I do a lot of things with um, the host of the Ancient Greece Declassified. Uh, there's also more interactive things like Clubhouse, and uh, there are a lot of movements. I, th I think even for the younger generation, people are searching for something more meaningful than maybe what they're starting to realize that they've been given. And so I think for people who love ancient history and philosophy and the Renaissance, uh, it's sort of our job, I think, to make sure people know that, that there are solutions, ancient solutions to uh, universal questions and problems. Um, but if I, if I may, um, I'd like to jump into at least a couple of these questions because I, I feel our audience has been writing in from the very beginning and uh, I would like to make sure they get to say something. So um, this first one is you mentioned finding comfort in history, knowing that these things have happened before. Is that not a cause for regret that the lessons don't appear to be learned? Uh, yes. <laughs> the short answer is yes, but um, uh, it is possible. I think the human race, you know, is, uh, there's a great, a great uh, line of Martin Luther who says that the human race is like a man who gets up on a donkey. He falls off. He gets back up and falls off the other side. <laughs> and meanwhile, the donkey is still moving. So you're, you're kind of making progress, but by fits and starts. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, the idea that human history has got a, um, is making progress towards greater happiness and greater fulfillment is wrong. We make greater progress towards the mastery of nature and I think also make very good progress in beating people and things like that in, 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 the, in the world of, of uh, in the world of material uh, happiness but we're not making much progress in terms of of the higher parts of human nature and i think that's the nature of thing the nature of the beast of of, of the human beast <clears throat> but um it is still possible to learn from history uh and uh i i i think that um it, it's it's important to our our mental health to, to study history, just because we need to know, um, <laughs> so we need to study history because we need to know when to panic. <laughs> but usually, usually, um, I think that would be when the asteroid comes to strike the planet. Otherwise, we we can cope. Um, I I think that's an excellent point. And uh, Zena and I actually talked about what to do if an asteroid hits in the podcast. <laughs> I said maybe we should all be preppers. And maybe <laughs> um, so this is actually a comment, and then I'll go into the next question, which I think is a bit more involved. Is um, I place a lot of weight on ideas and wisdom that have survived for two thousand plus years. I love to teach my eighth graders about the Stoics, show how this philosophy runs through it in history. We see it in Frankel and the power he gains and choosing his response in the face of the horrors of a Holocaust. Uh, recently, I've discovered Montaigne. Your book, Dr. Hankins, sounds like a perfect continuation of my studies. Just added Bennett's book to my to-be-read pile as well. And there's quite a few questions for more details on Bennett's book. So I think um, that will also be in the follow-up uh, to the email that goes out. Uh, and then there's another couple of questions that talk about, I guess, some of the 
accusations happening right now with the classics, um, both in regards to being seen as a tool of white supremacy to this question, which is there have been several opinion pieces on the decision by Har Howard University, a historically bad college, to cut out its classics department. The argument among uh, others is how important the classics have been to African-American authors, politicians at all. The language and words from the classics help them to fight for equality. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, question for me, well, I have to say that um, I think it's a huge mistake at Howard University. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we have, at Harvard in the last few years, had, had a number of students from um, Philadelphia Classics Academy, which is a classics academy basically for minorities in northern Philadelphia. And these are black students, basically, but they know Latin and Greek. And, they're kind of terrifyingly intelligent, but also, you know, since classics has been was for a very long time and may still be uh, uh, an education that that was proper to the upper classes. Knowing the classics for these young black kids is tremendously. Um, it really gives them a kind of strength and a kind of confidence uh, that they might not have. Uh, uh, you know, coming to Harvard and realizing that they know a hell of a lot more—excuse my language—a lot more Latin and Greek than than the than the guy from Exeter, right, or the guy from Phillips Academy, uh, who's sitting next to them in class. They can they can always outsnob them, right, uh, even though they come from from North Philadelphia and from a you know from the school. So uh, I'm a great believer, and this is also a good Renaissance phenomenon, right? That 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 the classics ennoble you. Uh, this is where the whole, uh, this is the idea of the true nobility comes from, that there are people who consider themselves noble because of their lineage, because of their wealth, but the true nobility is the no nobility of the person who has knowledge, who has uh, virtue, uh, who has ability. So I think when universities are doing away with classics programs, uh, that they're taking something away from, from people that they really need. And one thing I'd add to that, I mean, not having a grounding in the classics limits our ability to engage with some incredible civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. Like He was incredibly classically learned. He mentioned Socrates three times. Uh, he paraphrases Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all. He invokes Aquinas. Like the, these are core figures of of, of the great conversation, of, of the, you know, the wisdom of the human tradition. And um, I mean, ultimately, and this is a theme I explore in my book on civility, that the classics, again, they, they humanize us, they make us more humane, they cultivate that aspect of our humanity, and they they diminish that desire that uh, Augustine had the phrase libido dominendi, the lust to dominate others. Like we have that in our, it's in our nature as human beings, we want to, uh, we want to, we want to dominate others, and that's in all of us, and that these ideas that in, in cultivating our humanity help us see that human beings are things to be like cherished, and and, and they declare the irreducible dignity of the, and, and the and the vibrancy of the human person. Dignity, of course, was central to, um, to the Italian Renaissance as well. Pico della Mirandola's um, uh, oration on the dignity of man, that we are, we are the primacy of, of God's creation because we have, we have free will and, and, and that, like, that, that's part of our nobility. Uh, and that was a huge influence on, on why it was of utmost importance to cultivate ourselves to the fullest. To, uh, that was an expression of how we celebrated God. Um, 
So I agree with Dr. Hankins uh, with Jen, there's a lot to be missed um, in, in, in omitting this important part of the human tradition from, from our educational system. Yeah, I always think of Phyllis Whitley as well, the young woman who was a, a slave back in, I think it was the 1500s, who was the first um, African woman to be, or African American woman, I guess she was born in Ghana, so maybe still African, um, to be published in America for, uh, in the UK for her poetry. Uh, and she was very well read. She was still a slave at the time um, in Greek and Latin uh, and quoted, you know, Epictetus as a fellow slave as an inspiration. Um, and so it's a very uh, amazing story of, of how she was influenced by the classics. Um, I have a, a few comments with regards to, James, your point about the British honor system uh, from Brits, no doubt. So uh, as a Brit, I believe that the honor system has been increasingly degraded and corrupt in ancient years and should be abolished. Uh, I think it was a comment that uh, if not abolished, then at least rebranded. It's currently its current form is unpleasantly imperialistic. <laughs> well, I don't know very much about the British honor system, but I, I, ha I have noticed that the uh, that a lot of people in universities are thinking about that as a possible uh, set of set of letters to go after their name. Uh, but I guess I would vote in favor of rebranding or reforming. And I, I understand I've been, I've read enough. I read the Spectator quite often. I've been I'm aware that there are uh, it's highly uh, politicized and also um, corrupt honor in some cases. I don't know. I don't want to say the whole thing is that way, but I, I think it's possible. There are other ways to to give um, good public servants uh, uh, recognition, but I think it is very important that people that societies show have some way of showing that this person has done well has served the, served the, the the republic as we'd say in our country served the the monarch but also that their behavior has been admirable and that this is the type of person who can be held up as a model because this is another thing we didn't talk about but we one of the things we certainly need is more good models right people who who really can uh, this was understood ages ago that athletes you know famous athletes were supposed to behave well this is, you know, a long time ago, but when I was growing up in the 1960s, it was, um, I think it was shocking if a, if a major athlete uh, who was on every baseball card, right, or many baseball cards, um, if that person, you know, got divorced or, you know, beat up somebody, and now it's kind of, you know, a daily occurrence of, of sports figures, but there was a sense, uh, maybe I'm, I'm romanticizing, but there was a sense, or maybe I didn't know about uh, the, the, the bad apples, maybe they were covered up by the press, but there was still an idea that a sports figure, ha you know, had a lot of young boys, uh, and I guess girls too, looking at him or her, as we'd say, but it mostly was him in my youth, uh, and who were um, expected to live up to a standard, and, and people, there are a lot of people don't have that. I don't know where it's gone, but I think honor is a lot large part of it. But people have the sense that uh, I have to be a certain kind of person because of my position in society. I am not the kind of person who does that sort of thing. 
right? And, and if I do that sort of thing, I will be letting down my institutions. You know, if I behave in a certain way as a professor at Harvard, um, then I'm, I am, uh, you know, I'm letting down the institution and I'm, I'm, I'm destroying its prestige, destroying its, uh, its ability to change other people's lives in a good way. So um, uh, I'm not gonna pursue the Harvard analogy very far because um, we run on the rocks quite, quite soon. Uh, but nevertheless, I think this, the sense that people owed something to the institutions to behave in a certain way, and they had loyalty to those institutions, that, uh, you know, Yuval Levin wrote a book about this not, not long ago, I think, um, called A Time to Rebuild, I think, where he was talking about the need for institutions to be inhabited by people who believed in those institutions and behaved in certain ways in order to support them. You know, there are a lot of parasites in our institutions, people who think that they can behave any way they like and the institution will take care of them. They can destroy, um, they can destroy the curriculum, they, they can tear the place apart and the institution will still last. My message is the institution is not gonna last. Even if it's got you know, $40 billion like Harvard, the institution can be destroyed by people who don't live up to the standards of, uh, that such an institution should uphold. You know, I totally agree with the, the comments of honor. Um, and I, I might say that I think it's still alive in the public, you know, that, that they still recognize it. Uh, and just as like a very kind of maybe funny anecdotal one, um, I'm down here in Argentina and I've been here when Maradona died. And so if anybody follows football or soccer, that Maradona is an extremely famous uh, Argentine football player, quite uh, controversial character, but when he died, he died, you know, there was drugs and, you know, he wasn't, he, he wasn't particularly a, a good person. And so I'm sitting in a taxi with the taxi driver when the news of this, you know, iconic figure in this country dies. And I'm like, oh, how do you feel? And he goes, eh, you know, he wasn't a particularly nice person. Messi, however, who is probably one of the most famous soccer players in the world right now. He's like, he's a family man. He's a good guy. Like he's somebody you can cheer for. And I was like, wow. So, you know, I think to the person on the street, they, they, they still recognize the value in that honor, even if the people who are in the public eye don't realize the importance of it. Um, but I, I wanna go move on, uh, just a comment and then a question. Uh, one is, as a rocket scientist, I have found that my education has been deficient and I appreciate the conversation that is occurring about the humanities. Thank you. Um, so I, I love that at, no matter where you've been in your life, um, that uh, in the end of the day, I think the humanities does contribute something. Uh, and this, this question I'd actually like to ask you, Alexandra, because I know this is something you've discussed a lot uh, with Eric Adler in the Battle of Classics, but is do you think that our dismissal of the past is in relation to our putting science and technology above all. Maybe this is a good question to do back to back with the rocket scientists. Uh, we see those of the past as being naive and unsophisticated as they did not have the technical knowledge we possess. Hmm. 
It's a great question that really gets the heart of a lot of our problems in modern society today. Um, C.S. Lewis had the phrase chronological snobbery, where we think that we're constantly improving and that anything that's come before us is, is just better and deficient um, morally, societally, technologically. Um, there's a, a French thinker, Jacques Ulyel, who has an incredible book called The Technological Society. And by, tech, by technological society, he doesn't mean technology like like our iPhones. He means techne, the Greek word for, for knowing and making, and how we have become obsessed with, with knowing and making, and that we've become obsessed again with, with efficiency and utility and bureaucracy, that all of these things reduce our humanity. Um, uh, after I left the U.S. Department of Education, I was absolutely devastated and disillusioned and broken because I was told for a year of my life that beauty and goodness and truth didn't matter. And that basically I was surprised that the Department of Education didn't care about education and because they didn't care about the things that I had been educated in that were valuable and told to be valuable my entire life. And I, I read a lot of Max Weber after I left the Department of Education. His, his essay on bureaucracy helped me understand why part of why I was very unhappy is because a bureaucracy um, is a big machine. Weber is the one that coined this word, cog in the machine, that, that human beings become part, like a subordinate to the broader um, institution and organization. Um, and, and we don't even, you know, people become part of a larger thing that they don't understand the, the why of. And I think that is, is relevant to a lot of education today, that we you know, take tests and complete core curriculum requirements and check boxes, but we've lost the why of education. And the why of education is, is understanding who we are, what our purpose is in the world, and what it means to be human, and what the good life is. And without that, we are not enabled to to do this thing called life and society very well. We're very handicapped in, in our ability to do that. Um, so Jacques Delisle, I'll add that to our list of resources, uh, modern kind of critique of critique of modern society, wonder, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but really appreciate that question. Thank you. Uh, maybe this should be our last so we, we don't go too over time. Um, is the liberal arts versus humanities distinction both true and in a common sense a distinction without a difference in the following way? That is, do the liberal arts focus on the acquisition of skills while exposing the human heart and mind to humane letters, whereas the humanities, at least its liter literary component, works in a reverse way, focusing on formation while acquiring skills? Um, well, there are two historically distinct traditions, right? The liberal arts uh, was inherited from the Greeks. It's refashioned by the Christians into seven liberal arts in the fifth century BC. Uh, there, there are, you know, Cicero talks about the studies of humanity as opposed to the study of divinity, but for him, he's talking about things below the moon and above the moon, basically. It's, it's, a, it's a, a disciplinary distinction. But the studium humanitatis is, is meant to change character. Uh, which is not to say that the liberal arts did not change character, okay? I think this is the point that the questioner is is really getting to. Um, if you read Quintilian, who's our major source for ancient Roman education, also Cicero's De Oratore, um, they are very concerned with the moral character of the orator, who is the ancient name for statesman. Um, but the educational system is not designed to prove to produce good moral character uh, you if you were you would have a philosophy to do that 
You know, Cicero was, was an academic skeptic, but he was very much influenced by Stoic philosophy in particular. It's philosophy that was supposed to change your, your character. Uh, the educational system was really not intended for that. Um, it was intended to fit you to be a, a statesman. But this is what the, the humanists of the Renaissance were trying to change. They were trying to make uh, the educational system uh, improve the character of human beings. Uh, and they were reshaping the curriculum. And that's why they brought in moral philosophy, because moral philosophy was never part of ancient ancient education. Um, if you wanted to study philosophy, you went to Greece and you sat under a master or you brought a master to, to Rome and studied with that person. Uh, it didn't, uh, it studied poetry, but in a very early stage in order to improve your diction. Uh, and it didn't study history at all formally. Everyone read history, but it wasn't part of the education. You read, what you read was Sallust. You read uh, the, the short historical essays of Sallust, but they were read for style. Uh, and it, they, there might have been an assumption there that you would osmose the moral character of uh, Sallust, which uh, is not necessarily going to be anybody, uh, uh, or, or the moral examples in, in Sallust. But um, it wasn't taught as a school of prudence, the way of, 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 of prudence, the way it is taught in uh, the Renaissance in a very uh, explicit way. The first Professor of history was not didn't exist till the 16th century. Wow, but, uh, that's amazing! <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah, you know, the first art of history, where you talked about how to write history, is from the late 15th century. So, it's not part of the curriculum in the way that other studies are. That's fascinating. I think um, we should probably leave on that point, and because I'm sure everybody's starving and ready for lunch. Um, but I want to say thank you very much, and everyone, please check out Dr. Hankin's book, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft, and Statecraft. Uh, we will be sending out a link to that as well, so you can purchase it, read it, um, check it out, because I think you'll find it extremely valuable, worth uh, use of your leisure time. We do have a lot of questions still, so I will send them to our fantastic panelists um, to see if we can answer some of them in the follow-up email. Um, and I also want to say thank you very much, Alexandra, uh, for your excellent moderating and participation. Uh, and everyone, please check out Civic Renaissance, a wonderful newsletter dedicated to truth and beauty, uh, which I think is something we can all agree is a valuable use of our time. And I just want to leave with two comments that we have two more events coming up in the next month. Um, the next one is actually on Sex, Soldiers, and Thebes with James Rom, uh, Paul Cartledge, and Helene Foley. And then afterwards, I'm doing another event with Alexandra, uh, if you want to tell everyone about that, um, so they can join as well. Absolutely. We are having a conversation with uh, Christopher Salenza. He's a dean at James Hopkins University, and he's a biographer of, and a, a scholar of Petrarch, uh, Francisco Petrarch, who's come up uh, a number of times during this conversation because he's very central to this to this question of um, how to how to popularize, how to how to revive um, the humanities, the great conversation, and um, great books. I didn't realize he he coined that term. I love that, and mm -hmm. and um, so that that will be the theme of that conversation then, and it'll be a continuation of the, this question of how to how, get an education in these ideas, maybe outside the university. Or uh, interestingly, uh, Salenza noted that Petrarch was responding to a very 
utilitarian and bureaucratic uh, university system of his day that had become very scholastic and, and very kind of obscure and disconnected from the real world. And he was responding against that. So um, lots, lots of insights to learn uh, from Petrarch's life that are relevant today. Wonderful. Thank you again. And I hope you guys all have a wonderful, wonderful day. And we will draw uh, copies for James Hankins' book um, and the, the winners for his book and also the, the great courses uh, this week. And we'll be in touch. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. If you would like to learn more about the resources mentioned in this email, please go to classicalwisdom.com slash classics outside the classroom. You can find Dr. Hankin's book, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft, and Statecraft on amazon.com or at hup.harvard.edu. And you can sign up for Alexandra's free newsletter at civic-renaissance.com.